Well, we have come to the end of our summer series, which the weather makes that very fitting, right? Uh, summer's over, something like that? I don't know. Our, our summer series was uh, Picturing the Kingdom. It has been Picturing the Kingdom, and uh, we will finish that today as we look at a passage in Matthew 19. Starting next week, we'll begin a four-week series through the book of Jonah, uh, considering together God's scandalous mercy. And then after that, we'll be preaching through the book of Titus, and then that will take us up to Advent, and uh, we'll focus on our Lord's coming. And so that's just a, a preview of what's coming, just kind of as we wrap up this series that we've been looking at together. As we've been considering Jesus' parables, um, his stories shape our understanding, don't they? They give us pictures and perspectives that help us understand what life in God's kingdom, what kingdom life as a Christian is all about. And today, we're not going to look at a parable per se, but instead, we're going to focus on the shocking perspective that Jesus gives of how we think about family in the kingdom of God, and especially how we think about marriage and singleness. And I want to address right from the start that this is a weighty topic. Uh, It touches on some of the deepest desires and blessings and hurts that many of us have felt in various ways throughout our lives. Marriage, singleness, parenting, childlessness, the lack of family or having family that hurts us, And I'll seek to address these things as carefully as possible. I've prayed that that would happen. But if anything is hurtful or doesn't sit well with you, please let me know, because that's not my heart, and I'd love to learn how to better say and engage on these things. But one of the things that I love about the Bible and that I love about being a Christian is that God is not afraid of these hurts and burdens that we may carry. He sees them. He knows them. He knows your heart and what you need today in a way that I can't. And the beauty is that his word gives us a perspective, which ultimately is good news for us. And it's my prayer that we would all be encouraged in whatever situation we may find ourselves in by Jesus' words about the nature of our kingdom family that we have through faith in him. And so, the text that we're considering this morning is found in Matthew 19. It's just a few short verses there, but they are very loaded verses. Uh, Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible, we have the church Bibles there provided for you. It's on page 824. The text is also printed in your bulletins on page 8. Hear God's word from Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, 
receive it. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help as we consider this together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would send your Spirit, who is indwelling us even now, that he would help us to hear, to understand, and to believe your word today. We pray that you would transform us into people who view and treat ourselves and one another as who we truly are in Christ. Will you help us to get a glimpse of that today, even through the words of an ordinary and weak man? May we hear and see our Lord Jesus. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider these points, or this passage together, we'll do so by looking at three points. Uh, The first is the kingdom saying, where we'll really just kind of unpack what's going on here in this passage. Um, The second point is the way of kingdom singleness, where we'll seek to apply some of what he says. And then finally, the need for kingdom singleness in the church. And so let's begin Uh, by looking at this passage, considering together this kingdom saying. Verse 10 begins with a surprising statement from the disciples, isn't it? It's it's almost comical. If, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. We can tell right away, just diving in there, that there's a lot that's leading up to this pronouncement by the disciples. And so we need to consider the context briefly together. This section comes on the heels of Jesus' response to the Pharisees' question about divorce. They were seeking, like they often did, to trip up and to catch Jesus, um, to stir up trouble that would turn people against him. And so they were doing so by trying to trap him with a hot topic of the day. You couldn't get a much more loaded issue in Jesus' day, especially amongst the Jewish community, than, than this. The question that they're essentially posing to Jesus is, were there lots of grounds for divorce, like Rabbi Hillel believed, or were there just a few grounds for divorce, like Rabbi Shammai? And this was an especially loaded question, not just because of its religious connotations, but because John the Baptist had recently been killed for speaking out about Herod's marriage. This is a loaded issue that they're bringing up to trap Jesus. And Jesus responds by pushing back strongly about how they were even getting to their answers and framing the question. And while he affirms that in this fallen world there are situations where divorce is permissible, he also was strongly contradicting the popular practice of their day, which wasn't no-fault divorce. We could really call it women's-fault divorce. It's where a man could divorce his wife for nearly any reason, for nearly anything that he found displeasing to him which would often leave these women destitute and desperate for survival. We're not going to go into the Bible's teachings about divorce today. We're not going to unpack all those things that is for another time. But suffice it to say that in response to Jesus saying that men couldn't just divorce their wives for any reason, the disciples' gut response is, if that's the case, then it's better not to even get married. Now that's interesting. 
we could spend a long time talking about that reaction. But I think what's helpful to see is we may hear that as, wow, that might be a bit of an overreaction. I mean, what did they think marriage really was? But we hear that through a context where people can decide and decide not to be married. But their statement is far more extreme than this. They probably really couldn't even conceive of a situation where they would not get married. In Jewish society, and to a great extent, even in the broader Greco-Roman context in which they lived, it was almost unthinkable not to marry and to have children. Good Jewish men would find a wife, and they would have children, and that's how they would maintain their family line. That's how they would keep their inheritance. And if that didn't happen, it was often considered the wife's fault. Now, part of this was religiously rooted, wasn't it? They were to be fruitful and multiply and to produce Abraham's offspring. And because of this context in the Old Covenant of blessings and curses, if if that wasn't working for you, then that was typically a consequence of your disobedience or some sort of divine disfavor for not living according to the Old Covenant structure. So probably in light of all of this, the last thing that the disciples expected Jesus to do was to go on to further explain that not being married is a legitimate option for an Israelite. This must have been shocking to them because that's essentially what Jesus does. He says, you know, marriage is not the only way. Not everyone can receive this. It's it's not for everyone, but let me explain And then he goes on to instruct them about eunuchs. Now, eunuchs is probably a term we don't use all the time. If you do, I'd like to talk to you about that. I would just (laughs) love to know how that's uh, a part of that. Um, it, It wasn't a term that was used all the time in Jesus' day either, but they knew what this referred to. It's a term that referred to men who were unable to have children. And so Jesus, like a wise sage, he lays out three situations. The first two were commonly known to them, and then that lays a foundation for thinking about this third situation that would be stretching for them. He speaks first of those who have been eunuchs from birth. The rabbis would call these eunuchs from the sun, and what they mean by that is they have been this way since they saw the sun. They were born in some way unable to have children. The second category is eunuchs who have been made so by men. This could be because of war. This could be from an accident. Or this could be something that someone chose in order to enter the king's service. And so these two categories were known to them. But this third category would have been striking. He says in verse 12, the end of it, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of of the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying there in that terse statement? Well, it's important to understand he's not saying that they should literally castrate themselves. This is similar to how Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount when he speaks of gouging out one's eye and cutting off one's hand as a way of conveying a radical commitment to fight against sin as a part of kingdom life. Here, what Jesus is saying, he's, he's affirming that his followers, 
that Christians could decide that they could more effectively be part of the kingdom of heaven by not marrying or having children. This would have been earth-shattering to the disciples. It's hard to convey properly how striking this would be. Because according to Old Testament law, if someone had become a eunuch, especially if that was an intentional choice, they could never be a full-fledged member of the community of Israel. And Leviticus and Deuteronomy talks about some of the exclusions that they um, would face. And so not surprisingly, this passage ends with no comment from the disciples. I think they were just in shock. Uh, They were already shocked by Jesus' sayings about marriage. Now they're just sitting there, I think, dumbfounded. Why can Jesus say this? Does Jesus just feel differently about people than God did in the Old Testament? That's kind of problematic if we start to think that way, isn't it? Jesus is able to say this because he he brought a new situation for God's people than what was found in the Old Covenant context. The Old Covenant situation was all about preparation, having offspring as Abraham's seed, and through that offspring, the Messiah would come. But Jesus' arrival marked a transition from preparation to arrival, from promise to fulfillment. In Jesus, the Apostle Paul says that the true seed of Abraham has now arrived and that now all who believe in Jesus are the offspring, are the children of Abraham. And so what we find happening as we shift from creation through the Old Covenant lens to this reality that Jesus is bringing in the New Covenant is that the command to be fruitful and multiply has now given way to the Great Commission. We're going and making disciples, making children of Abraham of all nations through the work of the gospel. In Luke 20, Jesus explains to the Sadducees that marriage is an institution of this age. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they, again, are trying to trap Jesus. It was quite a hobby for many. But Jesus explains that in the age to come, Resurrected people will not marry or be given in marriage. And what Jesus is showing through his life, death, and resurrection is that his resurrection and ascension have now brought the age to come into existence and bearing upon us. And so what it means is that it's now good and right and fitting that Jesus' followers can already live according to the age to come, even now. And so these are all reasons why Jesus can still uphold the honor and the value of marriage in this age, while also making this radical statement that things work very differently now in his kingdom than they did during the Old Covenant, because the age to come has broken in upon the age that is passing away. And both singleness and marriage testify to this reality. And so that's a brief treatment of the kingdom saying. But I'd like us to think in our next point about the implications of this. How are we to understand Jesus' words as Christians in our day day and age? 
And so we'll consider together the way of kingdom singleness. The way of kingdom singleness. Jesus' words here, and then Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, really flesh out and help us understand how this works in the Christian life. And so for point two, I want to point out three things. Singleness and marriage are valid choices, callings, and gifts for Christians. And I'll repeat those things as we go, but singleness and marriage are valid choices, callings, and gifts for Christians. First, singleness and marriage are valid choices for Christians. Jesus says that the single life can be chosen for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a helpful qualification to think about, isn't it? Part of what this means is that it's possible to pursue the single life for non-kingdom reasons. Maybe you don't want to be monogamous. Maybe you want to live a promiscuous lifestyle. Maybe you really don't want to have to love another person in that way, and deep down it's, it's really all about self in some way. Jesus' words mean that it's good to examine our own hearts about the pursuit of singleness. It's also helpful to examine our own hearts about the pursuit of marriage because we can pursue that in just as ungodly of a way. But it's also possible that we hear this and we think that the only reason that singleness is valid is if we make some sort of super spiritual sounding calling to be our choice. We choose some sort of maybe vocational ministry life or life as a missionary. And and that's what makes being a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven okay. But Jesus' point was far bigger than this. Being a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom just means serving Jesus with your life as one of his followers. It means being part of his kingdom and living as a Christian in the world doing good to others in a Christ-like way, he's saying that can be chosen to be done effectively without having a biological family. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that having a spouse necessitates a lot of time and energy in this age. It takes a lot to rightly steward the relationships of marriage and parenting. And Paul's point is it leaves less time for other kingdom concerns. And what Jesus is saying here, and Paul as well, is it's fully acceptable to forego those responsibilities to focus on following Christ in other ways. This means that being a wife and a mother is not the only acceptable way of Christian life for Christian women. It means that being a husband and a father is not a prerequisite for being a godly man or even a leader in the church. Jesus and Paul's lives and ministries modeled this. And there can be many reasons that for you now, remaining single is a good way to follow Jesus. Some may not desire to be married, and that's perfectly okay. Others may have been deeply hurt, and there's nothing that says that healing has to include marriage. Some may not be attracted to the opposite sex, or you may feel same-sex attraction, 
Jesus brings a good word. He says that for you, living a celibate life, even while difficult, is a pleasing way to follow Jesus in that particular context. So Jesus wants us to see that living a single life is a valid choice for his followers. But what if singleness is more complicated than your choice? It often is in life, isn't it? Choice, fortunately, is not the only way Scripture describes these situations. We've seen that singleness and marriage are valid choices for Christians, but secondly, singleness and marriage are also described as callings for Christians. Singleness and marriage are callings for Christians. It could be easy to read Jesus' words and think that the only way that singleness is valid is if one has purely chosen this type of life as a 100% conscious choice. And sometimes we think it has to be a choice that never wavers throughout the rest of our existence. But life is often far more complicated than that. Some may very intentionally decide that marriage is not for them. But for others, it's often a mix of both choices and circumstances. Perhaps it's hard to find someone who would be a good fit for you. Maybe you've tried and it didn't work out, and maybe there was very little that you could do about it. Well, it's helpful to see that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of marriage and singleness both as callings in life. I'm just going to reference two verses in 1 Corinthians 7. If, you, if you'd like to turn there, you can just to see that I'm not making these things up. Uh, but you can also just listen and follow along. But in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. In this broader context of chapter 7 here, Paul says that marriage and singleness are situations that can and may change in this life. Single people may become married at some point, and those who are married often become single once again, either through the death of a spouse or through divorce. And yet in those situations of both circumstances and of choices, those things those situations can all be considered to be callings by God. Your present situation, Paul is saying, which is made up of both your choices and circumstances beyond your control, are within this context of God's sovereign calling where he can faithfully be served. That's what Paul wants us to see. And what this means is that just because you didn't 100% choose the situation that you are now in, it doesn't mean that that's somehow not God's plan, God's calling for you now. And what Paul wants us to see is that particular situation and all of its complexity is where you can ask, how can I follow and serve Christ in this particular marriage, in this singleness regardless of my whole role in the process. So singleness and marriage are are valid choices for Christians. They're valid callings for Christians. And then finally, singleness and marriage are gifts for Christians. Backing up a few verses in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Paul gives us another way of looking at both marriage and singleness. 
He says this, I wish that all were as I myself am, which he's referring there to being unmarried. Then he goes on to say, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. You know, it's from this verse that people often use the phrase, the gift of singleness. Have you heard that before? It's interesting because that phrase isn't actually in the Bible. It's trying to capture this idea, but I I think when it is phrased that way, it can tend to distort things. Many of us, when we hear about this, having the gift of singleness, we think that it means God gives this gift of singleness like some sort of zap that comes upon us, like a lightning bolt. That means that somehow you're supernaturally empowered to not desire marriage. And I've heard Christians tell me, I'm praying that I don't have the gift of singleness. I don't want that zap, right? I don't want that zap either. That's not what he's talking about there. Um, Others who find themselves single and desire marriage, they think they can't have this gift or view their singleness as a gift because they still have this desire to be married. The, The zap didn't work enough on them or something. Do you see what Paul says here, though? Paul says that both singleness and marriage are gifts from God. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, marriage, and one of another, singleness. And gifts in this age, this is this whole broader context that we could spend a lot of time talking about, but gifts in this age aren't perfect, are they? They have pros and cons, and gifts themselves will never satisfy us, but they're always pointing to something more, aren't they? Sam Albury, who himself is a single man, has written a beautifully helpful book for everyone in the church, I think, to read, Seven Myths of Singleness. And he summarizes this idea so well. Listen to his words. Marriage and singleness are both good gifts from God, ways in which we can experience God's goodness. But in a fallen world, they're gifts that come with unique difficulties. Neither is easy. Both are painful. Each has its ups and downs. And the ups and downs of each look different to those of the other. So the danger is that we compare the downs of our situation with the ups of the alternative. We singles easily look at the ups of marriage and compare them to the downs of singleness. And it's just as easy for married people to do the same in reverse. I think that says it beautifully. The challenge for all of us in whatever gift we presently have is to see it as given to you from the hand of a good and loving God, isn't it? One of my sisters in the Lord, when discussing these things, she sent me this quote from Spurgeon that just captures it beautifully. Remember this, Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Another sister, Paige Benton, wrote, It's a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. She writes that as a single Christian lady. 
This is something that the cross calls all of us to fight to believe about every circumstance of our life, isn't it? And it's especially helpful when we think about our situation of being either married or unmarried. So, Jesus and Paul want us to see that singleness and marriage are both valid choices for Christians, their callings from God, and their gifts from him. And the better we understand those things, the more we can seek to walk in a Christ-like way in the midst of that particular calling while we find ourselves in it. And so that brings us to our final point. The need for kingdom singleness in the church. The need for kingdom singleness in the church. It's one thing to know intellectually that this is an acceptable way for Christians to live. It's another to really grasp it as a church and to see how needed and valuable it is to be in a church where both married and unmarried people see the value of what Jesus says about following him in those situations. Can I just speak candidly for this final point? I'm going to, but if I ask you, then it makes it like you have buy-in or something. (laughs) It's just a warning, I guess. Part of the reason we wanted to include this non-parable in our series is that churches like ours often, and usually unintentionally, they feel like they're places just for families, for people who are married, who have children, and who are in the hustle and bustle of that phase of life. If you're younger and single, if you're married without kids, if you're older and you're single, maybe you've never been married, maybe you've been married and you're now widowed or you're divorced, then it can easily feel like you're on the sidelines, can feel like something's wrong with you. Even in our church, which our church is so healthy in so many ways, but people have expressed this about GBC. And part of the reason that people can feel excluded and left out and forgotten in our church is because we haven't been deeply shaped enough by Jesus' view of kingdom family. If we think about Jesus, he was the fullest most whole human to ever live. And yet he didn't marry or have children. While he still honored the God-given relationships of marriage and parenting, he also saw people through the lens of who God was now making them through Jesus' work. Remember the things that he would say? Who are my mother and my brothers? They are those who do the will of God. That's who my family is. He said, when people cried out, blessed is the mother who nursed you. Your mom is so blessed. He said, the real blessing is for those who hear and keep God's word. And he says, some will have to leave their families to follow him. But you know what? They will receive a hundredfold more family and love and intimacy, both in this age and in the age to come. 
And when he was in the final moments of his life, hanging on the cross, he looked down and saw his mother. And what was his concern? He said, Mother, behold your son. Son, who's not her biological son, behold your mother. Why? Because it was more appropriate because of their relationship to Jesus that John cared for Mary as his mother than it was for her biological sons who were not yet following the Lord Jesus. Jesus saw people through the lens of what he was making them to be, that through union with him they were becoming brothers and sisters, family of God. And our Lord Jesus, he came and he lived a perfect life as part of an earthly family. And he suffered and he died on a cross, alone, betrayed, abandoned by all who were supposed to love him. He did so to pay for the sins that created a rift between us and God and for those sins that have created rifts between us and others. But he was raised to bring us into a situation that would now satisfy all of our deepest longings, those longings to know and to be known, to be truly loved, to be accepted, to be valued and treasured. He died and was raised so that we could be brought into the intimacy, the fellowship of being adopted into the very family of God in the love of our Heavenly Father and with the Lord Jesus as our older brother, in a union that is so profound that the most blessed moments of marriage in this life are just a glimpse of that heavenly marriage. It's the very indwelling of the triune God with his people. Jesus says, that that intimacy, that heavenly love, it has begun even now. It's begun in our relationship with God as his love for us has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit. But it has also begun in our relationships with one another. The time that we spend together, the ways that we love each other, they're far from perfect, I love Sundays because they remind me of that. If I ever think church family is just this perfect thing, try hanging out for a few hours, right? It's far from perfect. But you know what? It's heavenly. It's heavenly because even now our relationships with one another are fueled by and held together by heaven's love as we are united in the Lord Jesus. And it's held together in a love that will never end, but only deepen. Not just the love that we have with God, but these bonds between us as we are together are part of that heavenly reality that will continue forever. I was thinking about that this week. I shouldn't talk about it because I'll just get choked up. I'll say it in brief words, looking through directory, seeing faces, thinking, brother, sister, heaven forever with you. That's a profound reality. And this changes how we view each other, doesn't it? It means that 
Every believer in this church is brother or sister to us, whether they're younger than us or whether they're older than us, whether they're married or single, whether they're similar to us or whether they're different. Every Sunday, we're all seated together around heaven's table, having a family meal, being reminded that every person here is worth knowing and loving and forgiving and serving because we have been known and loved and served by our Lord Jesus. And so this affects how we view each other in the church. And then finally, this affects how we treat and view those who are not yet our brothers and sisters in Christ. A young person once told me, at GBC, I didn't feel like I mattered until I was baptized. Think about the implications of that. Do the young people in our church who have not yet professed faith, do they feel this way? Do they know that they matter? They matter to us. They matter to God. But then it leads to another question. Do the unbelievers in our lives feel this way? That they only matter to us if they become a Christian. (laughs) The people who engaged with Jesus, they felt the exact opposite of that, didn't they? They mattered to him because he saw them as the image bearers that they were. And he moved toward them in love as he held out heaven's love to them. No matter what they had been involved in, no matter how far from God they were, they mattered to him. And he longed for them to become a part of his heavenly family. People in this world are desperately searching for a place to matter, a place to belong, a place to really know what it is to be loved. We know what that is, don't we? That is the love that we have between God and one another in Christ. Jesus wants to make us into the kind of people, into the kind of church where we're not just individuals who live like we always have, but our sins are now forgiven, but people whose very relationships with one another are a sign and an invitation to the watching world that heaven's life and love has arrived with Jesus Christ and that they can be a part of that love too. Let's pray that Jesus would help us in this by his Spirit. Our Father, we confess that we have failed in many ways. And we thank you for those words of absolution. It is finished, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Thank you for saving us and loving us, even in spite of the ways we have hurt and not loved others, and we have rebelled against you. But we pray that you would make us and shape us by your Spirit's work into people who love like the Lord Jesus has loved us. We ask this all in his name. Amen.